0: Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. So, good morning. My name is Drew. I am one of the pastors here as well, and it's good to see all of you this morning, and uh, thank you for joining in if you're at home with us. You know, it really is a difficult time that we're going through, but in many ways, uh, it, it is, it's an epistemological crisis, what we're facing, and I know a big word, but what, by, by that I mean it's a, it's a crisis in how you know, how you know what you know. What's true? What information is reliable? What sources can you count on, right? Who do you listen to? How do you make good decisions? How do you get the information that you need to make these good decisions? All of that stuff seems to be up in the air and we're not made to live with that kind of uncertainty. And to be quite honest, I think that really is the reason why we feel all the fear and the frustration that we feel. It's an epistemological, epistemological crisis. Uh, and, and the truth is in life, there's a lot you can't know. There's a lot that's up in the air. There's a lot that that really you have no choice but to kind of shake your head at and be unsure of. But there's one thing that you can be sure of. I mean, that's the message of Christianity, that there is some certainty in the world. God has broken into this world in Jesus Christ in love. You can be sure of that. And you can be sure of everything that flows from that. And you can live confidently towards God and live confidently for him, not shrinking back, but pressing on and pressing in to the things he's called us to. That's what what the passages we're going to read here in just a minute in John are about. Now, as we read, I want you to pay attention to the word confidence, because it keeps coming up. And we've said, John is giving us a series of tests by which we can ascertain the reality of our souls, the reality of our faith in Jesus Christ. And, And the test this morning that we're going to look at is just summed up in that one word, confidence, that you can if your faith is in Jesus, live confidently towards God, no matter what's going on around you, and because you're living confidently towards him, confidently for him in the world with no fear, pressing into whatever he's called you to. And so let's read together. We're going to read from a number of places in First John. Uh, the word actually comes up in chapter 2, and then again in chapter 3, and then again in chapter 4, and then again in chapter 5. So it's all over the place. This is an important concept for him, but we're going to read from chapter 2. Verse 28, and then chapter 3, 11 through 23, and then a couple verses in chapter 4 as well. You can follow along uh, as it's printed for you in the worship folder. You can grab a pew Bible and grab the, the pages that are written for you there, or you can just follow along on the screen behind me or on your television at home. Okay, so let's read uh, from this letter of John. Hear God's word. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence... For by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him, have confidence before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. has not been perfected in love. This is the word of the Lord. And so two things, just two things this morning from this text that we want to kind of um, investigate and discover together this morning. The first thing is, why is it so hard to be confident in God's love? I mean, why is it? I mean, it's the struggle, right? It's the struggle in Christianity. It's the struggle in most of life. Why is it so hard to be confident in God's love? And what happens when you're not? If you're not able to live confidently in that way, what, what results in your life? And then secondly, well then, if, it, if we just admit the struggle, we can also go to the solution and we can say, well then, how can you be confident? And when you get that confidence, what then? That's what we're going to see this morning, okay? So first, why it's so hard to be confident and what happens when you're not confident in God's love, and then secondly, how you can be confident and what happens then. So first, let's just walk through the text together along those two points. First, we want to just talk about why it is so hard to be confident in the fact that God does love us and in the negative impact of that unbelief. John Owen said it's the hardest thing in the world to believe that God loves us, but that is also the greatest sin we commit. The greatest sin we can commit against him is to not believe that he loves us. It's the sin underneath every other sin. And so Jonathan and I were talking this past week. I mean, this is the issue in the Christian life. Every other issue anxiety, fear, marriage struggles, relational conflict, all of it stems from this problem. I mean you got to get this right and then everything else flows from from whether you get this right or whether you actually have it wrong. We often shrink from him instead of confidently coming to him because we're told here in chapter 3 that we live with our hearts condemning us. Do you see that phrase in in 1 John 3:20 it's my life verse. Now, y'all are not awake because you should chuckle at that, okay? Can you chuckle with me? Can you laugh at me, please? Can you, okay. I mean, right? I mean, I seem to live right there in John 3.20 uh, more than any place in the entire Bible. Anybody else? You with me? It says, our hearts, whenever our hearts condemn us, you know, beloved, if our hearts condemn us, we have confidence before God. And so the op- opposite of the confidence we're describing is this condemning heart. Uh, but what is it? Well, if you read the stories in the Bible, when God showed up, people in that place, wherever it was, usually ended up with their faces in the dirt. They shrank back. Usually they fell to their knees or fell on their face and couldn't even look at him because God is an overwhelming existential reality. And if he ever comes near, if you ever are blessed with that kind of experience, if you ever really do experience his real presence, anytime he comes near, the very first thing that happens is that you immediately feel a sense of dread because of your own unworthiness and sin. So John Calvin said that the more you get to know God and see him as he really is, the very next thing that happens is the more you see of yourself and the more you see you for what you really are. The more you experience his glory and his light, the more you're confronted with your own darkness and your own sin. It happens at the same time. And so this is actually the way it's supposed to work. This is the way of spiritual enlightenment, actually, at the beginning. You see your sin. You see God's glory and his holiness and in his justice, in and, and his demands, and you immediately see your sin, and instead of redoubling your efforts to be a good person, you wave the white flag and you admit that you need a Savior because you know that no doing of your own would ever be enough. I mean, that's saving faith. At its bare minimum, that's saving faith. The problem is, when you confess your sins and God saves you, and he forgives you for Jesus' sake, and he casts your sins into the depths of the sea and remembers them no more, the way Micah the prophet talks about. But even so, you go on and your sins keep coming up and keep condemning you. Your heart keeps working out that condemnation, and you you continue to be overwhelmed by the accusations of your own heart, and so you begin to shrink back into fear, into selfishness. And even people of faith can live there because it's hard. It's hard to be confident in God's love. But when you're not, when you don't know deep down inside that he loves you, it puts you into this performance-based way of living where you're constantly trying to do things to earn his love and constantly being thwarted. Because no matter how hard you try, it's never enough. And somebody's always doing it better than you are. And unfortunately, you're hyper-aware of how well everybody else is doing relative to your own failure. Now, this happens on the subconscious level most times. We're often not even aware that what's motivating us in so much of what we do is the search for God's smile, but that's it. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum of faith this morning, whether you're at home or here in the room, that is at the bottom what we're motivated by in our life. We're looking for God's smile. And so we go about doing nice, Things, doing moral things, and being nice, but we're doing it out of an inner, uh, out of an inner emptiness and not a fullness. And so, in truth, all the niceness and all the morality that's a part of our lives—it's not actually love. It's just selfishness that's dressed up, dressed up in fancy clothes. And all of life becomes a competition to be better and to be more deserving than everybody else. And so, just underneath. The surface of this nice, you know, clean, moral life, just under the surface is profound darkness that can begin and then end up being a simmering resentment and even hatred at times towards those who we can't seem to beat in the game that we're trying to play. Now, this was the sin of Cain. Did you notice? Uh, that Old Testament reference in chapter 3 up in verse 12. John writes, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Now the story of Cain and his brother Abel can be found in Genesis chapter 4. You can read that later if you like. It is the first time the word sin appears in the Bible. So it is, uh, it is uh, the archetypal sin, the story of Cain. And Cain's fake religion... And his envy and his hatred and his eventual murder of his brother is, is the true definition of sin. It is the archetypal evil, it's the archetypal sin. And so here's the story. Both Cain and, and Abel were b- b- to bring an offering to the Lord. And so they both brought to God uh, something from their life that was, they were giving as a gift to him. But God rejected Cain's offering and he accepted Abel's. And Cain was jealous, and in a fit of rage over the incident, he murdered his brother. And the text here is actually helpful, because in verse 13, it tells us why he did this. It says, because his own deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Now, without going into too much detail, because really, this is a, this is a sermon about John 3, not Genesis 4, but the two are linked. Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. And what, the, what, what, we, what we say about that is that he related to God on the basis of his own performance. He offered to God his hard work. He said, here, God, look at all that I've produced. Look at all that I've done. Here, I, this is what I give to you. But Abel brought a sacrifice. He brought a lamb. He related to God in the right way. He related to God on the basis of God's mercy. Cain thought of himself as a good person. Abel knew that he was a sinner. And God was pleased with Abel's offering and not Cain's. And John says, at some level, in the process of all of that, Cain was confronted with his own darkness. But instead of seeing that Abel's sacrifice made a way for him too, he remained stuck in his wrong ideas about God, feeling bad about himself. And then he took it out on his brother. And his insecurity, his condemning heart, turned into violence profound violence against his brother. And so hurting people hurt others. Loving people love others. We say this. A condemning heart will make you strive to be better than everybody else to prove yourself. But what it does is it twists your relationships. It turns all your friends into the competition. And you'll find yourself living more and more angry and resentful because it never seems to go for you the way you think it should. And everybody else who is far less deserving seems to have it so good. And you'll collect all of those injustices and build an identity out of them that will take you farther and farther and farther away from God's heart. That's what happened to Cain. Envy and jealousy and murder, according to the Bible, are the same thing. Hatred and murder are the same thing. So, of course, probably, I, I, not that I'm aware anyway, none of us in the room would say that we've ever murdered anybody. But all of us would have to admit that hatred's made its way into our hearts. Envy, resentment, jealousy, these things have made their way into our hearts. But look what John says in verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. He takes this very seriously. This is a really big deal. And then in verse 14, he also says this. He says, whoever does not love abides in death. That person makes their home in death. And I'm telling you, that, just, that causes the hair on my arms to stick up. He says, if you're you're not confident in God's love, uh, you're you're gonna live your life toward others in envy and resentment and jealousy, and you are, and you are just making your home in death. If you're not confident in God's love, you'll turn life into a competition and secretly, sometimes not so secretly, grow to hate the people who beat you. Or you'll look for love in your relationships. But the problem is, those people are sinners too, and so they'll let you down eventually, and when they do, you'll hate them too. And you might not declare open war, but verse 17, you'll just close your heart against them, which is what he warns us against here, because they've hurt you or disappointed you, but it's the the same thing again. Love Love is refusing to close your heart to others, no matter what, no matter how painful it is, because you both desperately need grace. And by the way, that's how you know you have the real thing. Verse 14, we know that we have passed from life to death because we love the brothers. And so, where does that supernatural love for others come from? John goes on to say that it happens as God's love is perfected in us, as we come to confidently believe that we are indeed loved by the Father. So, look there. He says uh, in chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, we have come to know and to believe that is. To rely upon the love that God has for us. For God is love. For abides in love, abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, that we might have confidence for the day of judgment. For there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. So how can you be confident in God's love for you? I mean, how do you wage war against the condemning heart? You, you do it this way. You reassure your heart before him by abiding in the truth of who he is and how he's acted towards you in Jesus, and how he's acted towards you in Jesus, and you reassure your heart again and again and again with those two things until you're no longer afraid. Who God is. What does this text say about who God is? Verse 16, God is love. Love is not what God does, it's what he is. Love is not an emotional state in God that fluctuates, it is a part of his essence as trinity to be overflowing with generosity and self-giving love. God can't not love. That double negative is impressive, isn't it? I know, English, I'm sorry, English teachers, but, but, I'm, but I say it that way to prove a point. God can't not love. Do you know what that means? That means that you can't not be loved. No matter what. No matter what's happening around you, because he is love and he has acted towards you in love. John says, again, I know we're flip-flopping back and forth, but back in chapter 3, verse 16, he says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. God, God, the one who created the universe, the one from whom you draw every breath, that one has laid down his life for you. It's an allusion to the cross, of course. Jesus Christ laid down his life that we might live. He gave himself to give to us. But you see, it's not a one-time thing. The cross is the ultimate example of the way God lives towards us all the time. In everything he does. Every moment of every day. And so the condemning heart is an unbelieving heart. That's the problem. That's why I say it's the sin underneath every sin. It suffers from wrong ideas about what God is like. So the way you overcome it is not to vow to do better, but to believe differently about God. And so the answer, when your heart condemns you, is not a self-esteem exercise. Stuart Smalley in front of the window, right? You're, or, you is smart, you is kind. I mean, that's, those are powerful things, but that's not the way you fight this year. It's not, it's not a self-esteem exercise. You have to put your theology to work. And so it's not, don't be so hard on yourself, You're not as bad as you feel, no. Verse 20 of chapter three says, God is greater than your heart and he knows everything. In other words, (laughs) here's the theological truth, the stuff that you feel guilty about, that's just the tip of the iceberg, actually. You're not even aware of the worst stuff because sin is deceitful and it's buried itself inside of you and you can't see it, so everybody else sees it. But you are the least aware of the worst parts of who you are in all of the world. And God, it says, knows it all. God knows all the way to the bottom. He sees every bit of it and his love is greater than your sin. And so the way you quiet your heart, you quiet this condemning heart is not by disagreeing. This is counterintuitive, but actually you do it by agreeing. With whatever your heart, you know, your heart starts to say, liar, fraud, failure. And the way you the way you respond is not by by trying to say, oh no, you're wrong. The way you respond is you say, Yeah, you don't know the half of it. I'm way worse than you know. You say that to your own heart. You agree. And then you go to Jesus. You admit the truth about yourself. And then right on the heels of that, you admit the greater truth about God. Because he is the authority on what is true, not your heart. Did you hear that? God is greater than our hearts. He is the authority. What he says should be the thing shaping and forming the way you think about yourself, not whatever's bubbling up from inside of you. And what does he say? Here's what God says about you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Paul goes on to say there in Romans 8, I just quoted from there. He says, I'm convinced about God's love. He says, I'm absolutely convinced about the fact that God loves me. And that's the key, to be so sure that your sin is no match for his grace, that when you stand before him on the day of judgment, you can stand there confidently and not shrink back because you know you have nothing to fear. And every day from here to there, to live convinced that nothing can separate you from his love. That's what the Hebrews passage is describing that we read a little while ago, this life of confidently drawing near to God. It's this great passage with a true heart. You should go back and look at those words later. He talks about a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. I mean, it's the opposite of the condemning heart. Now, we didn't read this part, but in chapter 5, John circles back to this theme of confidence one more time, and he says, and this is the confidence that we have towards him. I mean, this is the application of what we're talking about. This is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And so, if you want to know kind of where you are in this whole process, you can measure your confidence by how often you pray and by the kinds of things you ask for. Now, don't get hung up on your prayer failures. Ask the bigger questions. Ask what prayer is, What your practice of prayer, whether you have no practice of prayer or whether you have a, a, a really robust practice of prayer. Ask What your practice of prayer is telling you about what you believe. Do you believe that your life is being carefully arranged for by the Father's love? So that you really can live, not afraid. So that you can do life, not by having to make it all happen on your own, but you can truly do life by asking. Because you have a Father who is taking care of all the details. Because of his love for you. Uh, We moved Canaan uh, back to Florida State yesterday to pray for our family. It's an emotional day, you know, sad. Uh, for the kids, the, the boys there were talking about how it was harder for them the second time around. So, But it was like, I'm, I describe it as the yearly dose of parental rejection. You know, like, leave me, get out of here, I'm ready to do this on my own. Uh, but, uh, so all the process of that we've been going through the last few weeks. And Ashley loves the best in our family, so she's, she's planned for weeks, she's had everything laid out, it was all ready to go. But of course, she's dealing with a 20-year-old boy and a husband who doesn't do that, and so there's still a lot of last-minute things, so... And ended up that I had to take Friday most of the day to run errands uh, to go to Orlando to pick something up and just to get all the things that we needed to be able to pack the car and go tomorrow. Uh, and I spent that time because um, I wanted to get not just the stuff that he needed, but I wanted to get a few things that I knew that he really wanted, and that would just make it great for him that he'd have a great year if we got this, just these few things. right? So I spent a lot of time doing that. Um, and it is. I mean, everything looked great when we left. Now, probably by this morning it's all just like it's like a bomb exploded in the room, or who knows? But when we left, it looked really nice. This little room he has. It was all set up. Everything was great. Uh, but while we were doing all that planning, as parents, who love our son and preparing for him as parents do, what we didn't realize is God was doing the same for us. So uh, he needed a new bed and uh we had arranged for that too like i said ashley was thinking ahead it was going to be delivered to his apartment as we were just as we were moving in it was all going to be perfect it was all working exactly the way it was supposed to and until friday night about eight o'clock we got the call that uh the bed didn't make it on the delivery truck uh, and so uh oh mama went dark like so we had to pack an air mattress because it may, you know it was gonna be two weeks because of covid of course before they could get the bed to him in his house and we were just so distraught. So we packed, you know, we packed the car with an air mattress, drove to Tallahassee, pulled into the store where we had, you because know, we were going to go there and choose somebody out. But we pulled in the parking lot, we prayed. We said, Lord, we have no idea, but you know, you can do something about this. We went in. Uh, she, she had called the manager or the assistant manager the day before, and so somehow someone had left the very last, last I mean, literally the very last mattress in the entire store with our name on it. There, they gave us hundred dollars off. We put it on top of the car in the rain, drove it to the house, but got it there. Uh, and then just a little bit later, a friend out of the blue brought over a Tempurpedic uh, topper that we did not buy him because we're cheap, that he wanted. And so Canaan got a much better bed than we planned for, right? Because in all of our planning for our son, God was planning for us. In ways. Now, it doesn't always work that way. It doesn't. But when it doesn't, it doesn't mean you're any less loved. It just means it's a more complicated process. But the point is does your confidence in God's love for you cause you to ask boldly of Him or to, and to live boldly for Him? Because it should. You know, I've noticed over the years that my children uh, were always willing to do dangerous, borderline, dumb things, adventurous things when I was around, that they would never have ever dreamed of doing if I wasn't there. Climbing waterfalls, they may fall to their death from, but, or whatever it might be. Something about my presence and my strength as their dad, and my love for them, and their confidence in that gave them courage. Like a little child jumping into a swimming pool for the first time. It's like a rite of passage, isn't it? Where they stand there at the edge of the pool, And you ask them to do do it all by themselves, and they're so afraid, even though there's absolutely nothing for them to be afraid of because they have the swimmies on and they're going to be fine. But then what happens? So what do you do? Mom or dad goes and gets in the pool, gets in the water, and 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 then you go right in front of them, you hold out your hands, and then it's game on. No fear. And that really is the way it's supposed to work. The application of the text is that we can have courage with God And then learn to live with courage for him. And I'm thinking of verse 18 of chapter 4, where he says, There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now let me parse that out in just a few moments we have to finish. Fear, John says, comes from believing that God's love is conditional. That it comes at the end of all of your striving to be good enough and do good enough to earn it that that is the bottom of all fear for everyone. And you gotta be spiritually aware, people know that. And so being afraid that you're not doing enough and that right around the corner is some kind of comeuppance, that's where all the rest of our fear comes from. But if you're always feeling like being loved by God is in jeopardy, you're cautious, you'll be cautiously trying to avoid making mistakes. You'll shrink back from life because you're shrinking back from God. But perfect love, we're told, casts out fear. And there's so much to be afraid of. You know, there's so much fear, right? There's so much fear right now. And I would say be wise and cautious and loving, but don't be afraid. We have nothing to fear. Perfect love casts out fear by canceling the threat of any future condemnation. So on the cross, Jesus... Uh, Isaiah, the prophet says that our punishment was upon him. So Jesus Christ has already suffered the ultimate consequences of, of your sin. That doesn't mean there are no consequences that you have to face, but it does mean that those consequences, whatever consequences you face, they cannot thwart God's design to love you and to the, and the ultimate good that he intends to accomplish in you and for you and through you. I mean, the gospel truth is God's love never fails or fluctuates because it isn't tied to our performance. And so when he says, I will never leave you or forsake you, he means it. It's a sure thing. And so you don't have to be afraid. On judgment day, it says, when you're standing before him, you can stand there in confidence with your head held high. Not because you've won the day, but because the record entered into the case on that day is not the record of your sins and failures or your successes, but the record of Jesus's perfect righteousness. And so... Verse 17, as he is, so also are we. I mean, it, You should just lock in on that phrase. That is a great phrase. But are you aware, as he is, so are you in the Father's eyes. What a gospel promise. And if you can look forward to the day of judgment with that kind of confidence, that then you can look forward to each day between here and there with the same confidence. Because look there at verse 17, it says, as he is, so also are we in this world. And so tomorrow is not sure to be full of the deserved consequences of your moral failings and your bad decisions. Tomorrow and the next day and the next and all the days from now until the great day, they all have been prepared with undeserved extravagances because you're so loved. And the only way to undo it, this great thing that God wants to do, the only way to undo it is to give in to your fear. See, fear and love are opposites. Fear banishes love. Love banishes fear. Well, what happens then? Well, it says that when the fear is gone, then God's love begins to be perfected with us. Chapter 4, verse 17. Now, this is something that we've got to come back to again next week. But the word there, perfect or perfected, is the telestai. It's the word that Jesus uttered on the cross. It is finished. And So this is the end of God's love. It's the goal of God's love to drive out the fear from us and then transform us into people who drive out the fear of others through our love for them. I mean, there's a sense in which my kids are meant, they've been designed to experience God's love. Their experience of his love is incomplete until they experience it in me, through me, in my love for them. And so to be perfected by love is to go through life being loved and loving, loving and being loved because that is what God's life is all about. God is Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the life of God, the Trinity, is the eternal experience of each of the persons loving the others and being loved in return. A community of love. And so God's love perfected in you then is your experience of being loved by the Father, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This love overflowing and creating from you a community of love around you. But that's next week. And we're out of time, so you've got to come back. If you've not been here in a while and you're listening at home, can I just encourage you, come back. We fight our fear together by warming our hearts at the fire of our collective courage like charcoal bricks in a fire. You take one and you separate it from the rest and it will lose its heat. And I'm afraid that's what's happened to so many people. But then if you you stack it back together with the rest, it will catch fire again. We need to be together now more than ever. So come back. Let me encourage you. Come back. Because that's what the world so desperately needs right now. It needs a people who together are not afraid and who together are fiercely committed to love. That's exactly what Jesus' love for us makes possible. And so let's pray that it would be true of us. Will you pray with me as we come to the close today? So Father, may indeed your love be made perfect in us in the way that we live, confidently being loved, and the way we live confidently loving others so that through the love that we show and the love that we um, share with one another, the world might come to know that there is reason to hope, that that we would be a voice of reason in an age of of confusion and despair, that we would be a people pointing to uh, the great truth that could be known, the sure thing in life that you have in Jesus Christ moved out into the world to love. And so there's no reason ultimately for us to be afraid. There's no reason, there's there's nothing that can take away our hope. And we can be a people that stand upon that faith, hope, and love. And so share it to the world that it becomes good news, which indeed it is. And so make it true, make it good news to us. And then may it be a good news that we share so that you might be glorified in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen so build your life upon his love. It's the sure foundation. It's the only foundation. If you're afraid, if you're not sure where to go, if you're not sure what to do next, build your life upon his love and then let him send you into the world to love and serve. That's what that's what the Christian life is. And so receive this benediction as he sends us. Here is the promise yet again of his heart towards you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.